with me to the book Second Timothy chapter 3 beginning at verse 13 while you're turning there Looking forward Friday night with our leaders. And uh, we're going to have a great time. I'm looking forward to tomorrow night. Somebody said, What's tomorrow night? I heard you. My wife's coming home. I'm ready for my wife. I looked for earlier flights. I looked for flights there. I looked for flights into airports three hours away from where she's at. Just ready for her to be home. She's ready to be home. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13 says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The man of God or the woman of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I didn't have a fancy title tonight for a couple of reasons. I didn't want to lose these notes because sometimes I go through my notes trying to find something that I've preached and I know the meat of it and I forget the title. And, uh, but we're going to talk tonight about types and shadows, types and shadows. And that doesn't sound very exciting, but trust me, it's exciting. It's exciting. Let's put our Bibles down. Let's go before the Lord in prayer tonight. God, I love you. And I thank you for all you have done. God, I thank you for all that you're doing. Lord, I pray that your word would come alive to us tonight. God, I know your word is alive, but I pray that it would come alive to us. God, that somebody tonight would get fresh revelation, fresh inspiration, God, that they would receive strength through your word tonight. God, your word is perfect. Your word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the, the, the piercing of the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joint and the marrow. God, I pray that your word would find its mark God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the ability to speak the word, God. 
Thank you for the ability to speak the word out loud in Jesus' name. Jesus' name. You can be seated tonight. And if you feel like you're too far away, you can scoot up on one of these other sides. Uh, there's so much in my brain right now that I'm going to try my best. Try my best to focus. Okay. Um, we we read Second Timothy chapter three and verse thirteen, uh, and man, it sounds daunting. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. I was reading today in the Second Thessalonians, it's chapter two. Verses uh, 3, 4, 5, and then 7 and 8. Uh, and Paul is, is talking to the church uh, at Thessalonica about the end times. And he's saying there's, there's coming an Antichrist. The spirit of an the Antichrist is working even in Paul's day. It hasn't stopped. But the Antichrist as the individual who's going to rise, that, that Paul said he's going to sit in the temple as God, not a God. Even the, the, the King James Version does not say lowercase g. It says he's, he's portraying being God. But he said there's, there's something holding that back. And even when we read 2 Timothy 3 and verse 13, know that there's, there's something holding that back. And that's the Spirit of God working in you and I, the church. And those spirits will not, cannot be released until we are gone. So we read 2 Timothy 3, and I, I came to teach tonight, but I've got a lot of notes, and I already know I'm not going to get through everything. So, and there's not as much as I wanted to have. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. That sounds daunting. That sounds depressing. Deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which you have learned that you've been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. He's not writing to Timothy saying, hey, I taught you this, therefore, this is good stuff. You heard this on the Apostle Paul podcast. You watched it on the Apostle Paul YouTube channel. You subscribe to the e-newsletter of the Apostle Paul. Apostles are us. This has got to be good stuff then. No, Paul is telling Timothy, you have learned this, you've heard this, you've learned this, and you have been assured of it because it is not of men, it is of God. So don't just know the knowledge, but know where it came from. Know the source. And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. So he's talking about things that he didn't just read in Scripture, but things that were imparted into his spirit. Things that were imputed into his spirit. Things that were inserted into his soul, into his psyche, into his being by God. That the word of God as the sharp two-edged sword can pierce and peel back and cut away and 
insert things into me and transform who I am. From a child you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. He's saying, I know that through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, we have salvation, but you can't have that without the Word. That Scripture is the sole source by which a person finds the path to salvation. We don't find salvation's plan in an encyclopedia. I don't even know if our young people know what encyclopedias are anymore. Now they visit Encyclopedia Britannica, or it's probably, I think it's just Britannica.com now. We don't find salvation's plan in an encyclopedia. We don't find it on Google. We don't find it in a podcast. We don't find it on YouTube, and we sure don't find it on social media. But we find the salvation plan in the Word. Verse 17. I'm sorry, I'm not going to skip ahead. I'm not going to skip over this note. Uh, verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, we could, we could just read over that in our, in our cute little English American minds and, and be happy. Because that's a great Scripture. But when you begin to look at the word inspiration, the way that it was originally written by the Apostle Paul in the Greek, it means that the Word of God was God-breathed. It is God-breathed. And the definition continues that it is profitable for doctrine. So, I'm, I, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We're preaching tonight about the Word of God. And if you don't get anything else, you need to understand that this is more than a collection of pages. This is more than words on a page. This is more than if you got a little fancy Bible. It's got, it's got three bookmarks or place markers in it. Got one of my office, got four in it. Man, now we're really getting somewhere. It's more than full yaps or partial yaps and book styles and print types. It's more than publication dates and transliterations. It's, it's more than any of that because you see throughout history there have been many attempts that have been made to reduce Scripture to the level of man's opinion. But let me preach to you right now that this is not man's opinion. This is not man's creed. These are not man's ordinances. Every attempt that is tried to make it less than what it is has failed due to the fact that scripture is God breathed it's given for revelation it's profitable for instruction it gives me instruction in righteousness it corrects me it reproves me it's the final word when judgment day comes this is the final word by which my entire life will be judged this is more than a book it's more than a novel. It's more than a collection of short stories. It's more than a, a novella. It's more than a, a book series. That the man of God or the woman of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished or fully 
equipped. It's more, so much more than tight and tabs. It's more than lines and letters. It's more than paper and ink. It's more than binding and glue. It's, it's, it's everything. And the greatest danger in our lives is allowing the Word of God to become ineffective by not using it. The greatest danger in my life is not ingesting the Word of God. Because if I, if I just see it as a book, then everything it says will lose its emphatic nature. If it's just an ornament on my coffee table, It's just an item on my shelf. Part of a Facebook group we just, I don't know what's it called, a publisher, Brother Stratton? R.L. Allen? What do they call it? It's a, it's a publishing company. That's where he ordered this Bible for me from very nice Bibles and very well crafted. I think it's okay to invest in a nice Bible. It's the Word of God. He gave everything for it. So, but there's there's people on this on this group that they're Trinitarians. They're this. They're that. They got these collections. Collection. I'm calling it stacks. Bible. A lot of good it's doing them. If I don't ingest it, if I don't let it peel back the layers, it's just a book. But I came tonight from the onset of this service to get us to understand that it is God breathed. It is God breathed and God equipped us with this tool, with His Word and the things in this Word so that we are able, like Paul preached to Timothy or wrote to Timothy, there are going to be some that are deceiving and being deceived. We do not have to fall prey to that when we are equipped with the Word. More than a book, more than letters, more than sentences, more than chapters and verses. And so we came tonight to dig into the Word because in this Word is the power of salvation. And so it's more than, than flowery sermons. It's more than this or that. And I, I love preaching. I, I, you should know by now, I love preaching. I love Ripping and snorting and all that stuff that comes with being Pentecostal preachers. And I love all of that, but we can't just have that. We've got to have word. I can't just get up behind the pulpit and just scream. Nonsense. I can't read you the McDonald's menu and scream it for 30 minutes and have any power. Other than the power to make you hungry or disgusted. One of the two. It's going to do one of the two. And so we've, we, we are equipped with the Word. So we're going to use it. It is God 
breathed. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Now the things which we have spoken, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Paul said this wraps it all up. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In the heavens. That means he's in the position of power. He's in a position of dominance. He's in a position of authority, dominion. In the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. The Lord pitched it. Man didn't pitch it. They might have set it up and taken it down, but the Lord pitched it. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. offer. That Jesus fulfilled Old Testament duties. Not under the old covenant, but in a new covenant and maintained the accuracy. We're talking about types and shadows tonight. What's a type? What's a shadow? I got my notes out of order. We talk types and shadows. Types and shadows are things that foreshadowed biblical events that would take place later. This is going to make a little bit more sense here in a minute. In technical terms, a scriptural type, type, put it in quotes, type, is a foreordained representation of the relationship which particular people, events, and divine institutions of the Old Testament contain in relationship to something that happened in the New Testament. So it's something that happened in the Old Testament that has its own meaning in the Old Testament, but it also points towards something that's going to happen from their perspective in the New Testament. That's a type or a shadow. And so, that's it in a nutshell. That's the definition. Now I'm going to back up. We know that God is a God of order. God is a God of order. In fact, He's a God of perfection. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. If, if Jesus was going to step on the scene as a high priest, there had to be a sacrifice to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there were, or are rather, priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, he saith, or saith he. God's talking to Moses. Moses, 
See that you make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mountain. He's a God of order. He's a God who's got a plan. He's got a pattern. And he told Moses, Moses, make sure that you follow the plan. Make sure that you follow the pattern. If you don't follow the pattern, it's not going to work. But I've got a plan, and I've got it for a reason. There's a method to the madness. There's a method to what I'm, I'm telling you. That God has not left man to work out his own plan and his own ways. We kind of take that scripture out of context, work, uh, out of context, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, thinking, man, I could just make my own plan. No, that's not what God was saying. He's not left us to make out and work out our own plan. Verse 6 says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Better promises. So God hasn't left man to work out his own plan. You can look into the heavens and understand that God is a, is a God of order. You can look into the sky. You can walk out tonight if there's no clouds and, and you can look out and you can see the, the moon. You can see the star. Now this is the kind of God that He is. This is the greatness of God that we serve. The other night, Zeke and I were studying science and we just kind of got tickled because we were talking about what we were talking about. Remember? Yeah, we were talking about evolution. We get tickled over evolution. So I mean, oh, look at that. This guy is not. How do you get tickled over evolution? Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God divided the light from the darkness. The darkness, I'm sorry, the light he called day. The darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning the first day. Also in Genesis chapter 1, you get to the fourth day, and the Bible says that God creates a greater light and a lesser light. The greater light He calls the sun, the lesser light He calls the moon, but He's already created light before He ever created the sun. And in our own human Wisdom and thinking, we're thinking, man, he had to create the sun first because that's where all of our light comes from. But it's not. It's not. It's not where our light comes from. Where our light comes from when he said, let there be light and there was light. That's why I'm going somewhere called heaven where the Lamb is the light. When there is no sun, there is no moon, there is no stars, where He is the light. Because before the sun was ever created, there was light. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's why, young people, this is more than just a book. This is not a Christian's textbook. This is God-breathed. He's a God of order. God of order. God did not use evolution after the initial creation to help creation along. He spoke it 
into existence just how he wanted it. So you can look at the sky. I'm not going to get real far. You can look at the sky. You can see the sun, the moon, the stars. They're in their proper orbits. None of them interfering with the other. And then we can look at that and we can realize how much God really is a God of order. The Bible says, I think, I believe it was Job that said that he hung the heavens out like a curtain. Shower. Slides across the bar. Boom. There's a galaxy. Find, as we begin to search his plan, that not only does he have a special course and order for the heavens, but he's also got paths planned for his people. God creates with precision. He creates with precision. Precision. When Moses was about to build the tabernacle, he's admonished by God, hey, make sure you follow the pattern that I gave you when you were having that spiritual moment in the mountain and you heard my word. If God was so particular about the building of the tabernacle, then we could understand, and, and it stands to reason that when he formed the church, which is the fulfillment or antitype of the tabernacle, that he would also have a plan for the church that's designed by him and designed for him. And so, you look at the earthly ministry of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, after his resurrection, the writer of the book of Acts says in verse 2, until the day, I'm just laying foundation here, so if, if you're feeling a little lost right now, it's okay. Unfortunately, my notes were designed that way. We'll have to work on those later. I apologize. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. That word infallible is not used anywhere else in Scripture. In fact, there really is no one singular Greek word that describes that word infallible, but when you, when you look at it in context, and scholars do weird things, and they group words together, if there's whatever. Infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So he, he showed himself alive. Imagine what it would have been like after the disciples run back into town and they're screaming, he's alive. He's alive. Who's going to believe that? Even his disciples didn't believe it. To know somebody stole his body. Because it doesn't compute. Even though we've seen him raise the dead, he was alive when he rose the dead. Or raised the dead. He was alive when he raised them to life. How could he, being dead, raise himself to life? It doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. And so there had to be infallible proofs. These were not instances that were probable. He's probably alive. 
This was not circumstantial evidence that, well, this happened and so, you know, I mean, if this was possible, then yeah, this could be possible. It wasn't a, he could be alive. But Jesus proved himself with certainty. There was no doubt that he was alive. And so just as Jesus proved himself to be alive, his word proves the nature of our relationship with him, his plan for humanity to come to him, and so much more. How did he do it? He used infallible proofs, types and shadows, things that are that are are pointed toward from the Old Testament and then fulfilled in the New Testament or the, the New Testament church. They are infallible proofs that, that when you see them, you cannot unsee them. God used types and shadows in His Word to let us know with certainty that His Word is infallible. That means there is no fault in His Word. There is no private interpretation of Scripture. He says what He means, and He means what He says. He wants you and I to not be swayed by those who are deceiving and being deceived, who are waxing worse and worse. But we have a solid, sure foundation in the Word of God that we can lean on, that we can show, and we can teach, and we can preach, and we can believe because it is infallible. There is no fault in His Word. So he used types and shadows. Foreshadowed biblical events that would take place later that had their own meaning, which is the difference then between prophetic utterance by itself and types and shadows. Types and shadows had their own Meaning, but in addition to that meaning, also pointed toward something years down the road. Where the prophetic was just pointing, saying, hey, this is the meaning. Similar but distinct. One of Proofs of inspiration of the Scripture. The one, of the, the one of the reasons that we know the Bible is real is because of the examples of foreshadowing. The double application. It worked in the Old Testament and it also worked in the New Testament. It was pointed at in the Old Testament, but it was fulfilled in the New Testament. You can't make that up cannot make that up between 66 different books and different writers and hundreds and thousands of years you cannot make that up cannot even surviving 400 years of silence and and picking up in the same spirit for example now now we're going to get into some types and shadows hebrews chapter 7 Verse 1. It talks about man 
about whom, around whom there has been some debate, some discussion. The Bible calls him in both the Old and the New Testament, Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a type of Christ. Hebrews 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, talking about priests before the Levites existed in the flesh. They existed in the bosom of Abraham. But Abraham did not have a lineage at this point. So the writer of Hebrews is pointing way back. He's talking about it in the New Testament because they now know what Melchizedek pointed toward. King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. First being by interpretation king of righteousness. And after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent or children having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now, let's talk about the discussion. Because I, don't, I didn't feel like we could just skip over that. There's, there's been a lot of discussion about Melchizedek's identity, whether he was a theophany, which is God appearing in man-like form. When the angel of the Lord sat down and ate with Abraham, when Sarah was in the tent and she laughed, and then the angels go to Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy the city, the angel of the Lord was a theophany. So, that was God appearing before Abraham in man-like form to the point where he ate a meal with him. So, was Melchizedek a theophany or was he a, a mysterious ancient priest of God who came on the scene in the days of Abraham? His titles, King of Righteousness and King of Peace, gestured toward Divinity, the fact that the Bible calls him both a king and a priest, also point towards divinity. Because the Bible says that you and I have been made kings and priests. So it's pointing towards something that would happen not in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, in a new covenant. The description of him is that he has no parents, he has no descendants, he has no beginning. He has no ending. However, while those statements do indicate divinity, that means he was divine, that means he was God, those statements could also simply suggest that there was no biblical record of his birth, his parents, or his, or his offspring. And so in, in that vain or line of thinking, 
uh, being likened to the Son of God would have indicated that, yes, he did have parents, but the Scripture just did not record them. So there's discussion. Whether or not he was a theophany, meaning God appearing in man-like form, or he was just a man of whom there was no physical record of his lineage. He was still a type of Christ. Verse 4, now consider how great this man was. Notice, I mean, you, when, when you think about it, Paul is writing to the Hebrews. And he, he's writing in a different language than he does to the Gentiles. Now, consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. He just told them, Melchizedek, no matter what you and I believe about Melchizedek, he was greater than Abraham. Now to the Hebrews, they esteem Abraham as everything. That's the father of our nation. They're getting riled up. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. But before they were ever a, a sparkle in their daddy's eye, inside the, the physical body of Abraham, they too gave tithe to Melchizedek. Because everything that Abraham was gave tithe to Melchizedek. They came out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. The less is blessed of the better. He just told them again that Abraham was less than Melchizedek. Now, to me, that points to divinity. That's my viewpoint. I don't know that that's right or that's wrong. That's my view. And here, men that die receive tithes. Also, to me, that language points to the fact that Melchizedek did not die. But there he receiveth them, of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? He's again telling them, if the Levitical law had been good enough, we would never have needed, we would never have needed a priest according to that greater order, which was the order after, of, of Melchizedek. The Levitical priesthood was not sufficient. If it were, God would not promise to establish a priest after another order. But God was pointing toward himself. He was pointing toward Jesus Christ as priest over another order. To be both the high priest, the king of all kings, and the spotless sacrifice. The Bible repeatedly calls Jesus a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek was a type of Christ. If Melchizedek was the type, then Jesus was the anti-type or the fulfillment of that. Does that make sense? Those two words are a little confusing. Type and anti-type. 
sounds like anti-type is bad. But it's really just, it's the fulfillment. So, moving on. And I'm aware I'm not going to get through all my notes. So don't think I'm just going to keep you here all night. Adam was a type of Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Paul, is in Romans chapter 5, begins talking about the two heads of humanity. Not heads, but two authorities of humanity. The discussion begins by establishing the fact that there is a global plague called sin. And it came into the world by this one man, Adam. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. So if nobody knows right from wrong, how can we label it sin? But he's writing and he's saying when the law entered in, sin began to multiply. Why? Because we labeled it. We labeled sin. Labels are still okay. He was not trying to be politically correct. He was saying there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude or similarly to Adam's transgression. They had not disobeyed a direct order from God, yet because sin entered the human race by Adam's sin, everybody sinned. And everybody is a sinner. From the womb, they are sinners. Which is why the psalmist could say, I was born into sin, shaped by iniquity. Actually, if you read it, it says that he was shaped by iniquity, and in sin did his mother conceive him. There's discussion about that too. The fact is that when we entered the world, from conception, we were sinners. Because sin is part of our human DNA. After Adam sinned. However, verse 14 doesn't stop there. Even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. So just because I didn't sin just like he did in the same sin doesn't mean I'm not a sinner. But the rest of verse 14 says that Adam is the figure of him that was to come. He was the type of one who would come. The power of death is revealed in the fact that it reigned over all men. Even uh, whether before or after the coming of the law, death reigned over all. Death reigned over all. But Adam was the figure of one who would come. Which is why the Bible calls Jesus Christ the second man, Adam. The first Adam brought sin and death. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, brought redemption, grace, and salvation. So, but verse, uh, verse 15, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of by grace, which is by one man, 
Jesus Christ hath abounded unto many. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. While the law defines sin and made it seem like sin was abounding, it wasn't any worse than what it had been before. It just had a, la a name. It had a label on it. And, and uh, so to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. So the law seemingly made sin to abound, but it is uh, it, it actually set up an opportunity for the grace of God to abound by bringing the answer to the condemnation. That's why the Bible says that where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. So the type of Christ that Adam was that could perform an action that would condemn the world, Jesus Christ as the fulfillment performed an action that could redeem the whole world. Verse 21, that, has, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto the eternal life, unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. One sin had entered, uh, had, one sin had entered the entire race, which was the seed of Adam. Sin of Adam through Christ. Now, all of that has been replaced by a new birth. So, Melchizedek was a type of Christ. Adam was a type of Christ. The tabernacle in the Old Testament priesthood is fulfilled in the work of Christ. You can read that for yourself in Hebrews chapter 5. The Israelites going through the Red Sea are a type of Christian baptism that seals deliverance from bondage. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Indicative of spirit baptism by the cloud, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, and water baptism in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. Here's a bonus one in verse 4. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That's another type, an anti-type. John chapter 4 and verse 10, Jesus told the woman of Samaria, He answered her, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. And so you see it in the Old Testament, the exodus. That means exit. The exodus from Egypt, which has always been symbolic of the world. That God brought his people out of the world. And the apostles said they were all baptized. He's preaching that on the other side of Pentecost. He's preaching that after having lived a Pharisee lifestyle. Pharisaical for the theologian. He's living that, having known the Levitical law, and also experienced a new birth. And he's saying, now it all makes sense. He was persecuting the church because he thought they were living and preaching blasphemy. 
But Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus sees the bright light and he hears a voice. It knocks him down from his mount, from his noble steed. He lays on the floor, the ground, in the dirt. This pristine man, Paul. He says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he says these words, Who art thou, Lord? Who are you, God? Why, why do you say I'm persecuting you, God? I would never do that. In absolute sincerity. Who art thou, Lord? Yahweh, who are you? How am I persecuting you? And the voice speaks back, I'm Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Whoa. And then all of the things that he's learned in Pharisee school start clicking into place. Oh. When Stephen said, Father, lay not these sins to their charges. He wasn't just talking to the God that I thought I knew. He was talking to the God I just met. In greater revelation, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, who is still speaking. Ha <laughs> ha! Still speaking. Jesus was not having an out-of-body experience. But from that place of absolute authority, speaking to Paul after Jesus' ascension. Oh, I love the word. That's why you don't get that when you read a novel. You don't get that when you read the newspaper. You don't get that when you read an email. Because those are man's words. This is not man's word. This word is alive. This word is alive. And Paul was, he's now saying everything makes sense to me. I see it in the old and I, I've experienced it and I see it in the new. That's why Jesus said he didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. Now it makes sense. Repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, the infilling of the Holy Ghost doesn't do away with the law. It's the antitype. They were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Did all eat the same spiritual meat? Did all drink the same spiritual drink? Man, it's me every time. Except for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. Paul is an expert. I'm talking an expert at another level of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy expert that's why he would write to the Gentiles and the Jews he's an expert they all drank from the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ even the rock out of which water flowed in a desert place oh he said that rock is Christ it was pointing towards a well of living water. Ah! Tabernacle. In the tabernacle. The veil was a type. 
Is anybody, just throw me out a guess. What was, what was that a type of? saying like being the veil being torn was the revealing of him that just the veil itself yes It's not our flesh. Jesus' flesh. So Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. Verses 19 through 22. Specifically verse 20. And you're right. The veil hides the glory. The Shekinah. Glory. And so forth. And everything in there. And everything in there. Another lesson for that. There is all kinds of types and shadows in, in the tabernacle of the wilderness. All kinds. It is so good. I mean, Heath and I were talking about it this afternoon. It, it's just on the table of showbread, there's two stacks of bread. And there's six pieces of bread or six loaves of bread in each pile. Six and six laying next to each other, and there are 66 books of the Bible. And the Bible is called our daily bread. I'm, it's just everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. Hebrews 10 and verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember, when the priest would go in twice a year, he had to have the blood from the sacrifice. He's saying, now you and I, after we're baptized in his name and the blood is applied to our lives, we can slip behind that veil. Because I got the blood. I can enter into his presence. I feel the Holy Ghost. If this doesn't get you excited, your exciter is wrong. It's broken. Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. So the veil itself signified the flesh of Jesus Christ because his flesh was hiding the divinity. He was 100% God, but that was wrapped up in humanity. So in Mark chapter 15 and verse 37, and Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. His body's broken. Spirit, the soul leaves the body. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain the moment he gave up the ghost. The moment 
he died. The veil is torn. From the top to the bottom. Again, all kinds of symbolism in that. Because the Bible says that it happened at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. They would offer sacrifices two times a day, in the morning and in the evening. He'd been on the cross all day in that evening sacrifice. Imagine the priest being there. Sacrifices tied. There was a lamb tied to the altar. Ah. And that lamb's life was spared. If it was, it could have been. The priest could have just been freaked out. But that, that lamb is there. That sacrifice is there. And the priest would put his hand on the head and cut the throat on the altar. And the blood would flow. And at that time, instead of that lamb having to die, he gives up the ghost. And the veil in the temple behind that high priest that separated all of the nasty death the altar, labor, so on and so forth. That veil is torn because the high priest after the order of Melchizedek just gave the ultimate sacrifice. And that's a different order than this little earthly order. Verse 21, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full of in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You can't tell me that baptism is not essential for salvation because it's in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. The baptism of the children of Israel in the Red Sea sealed them from the Egyptians. Sealed them from their past past was dead and gone, buried in a watery grave. Let's stay. Why don't we just, let's just lift our hands and let's thank God. There is so much validation in his word. And we just, we just barely started scratching the surface tonight. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the infallible proof of your word. God, I thank you for everything that your word is, everything that your word is to us. God, I thank you for salvation. I thank you for making it plain in Scripture, God, so that we do not have to be deceived, that we don't have to worry about whether or not we are saved, but God, your word is alive. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. It is a light unto my paths. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you have done for us. I thank you, God, for your life that you gave. I thank you for the pattern. God, I thank you for the order that you have given. And God, I thank you for being so much greater than an earthly order that could just push my sins back. But God, your heavenly order is so much more powerful. It's able to redeem. It's able to wipe away my sin. It's able to, to cleanse me. It's able to save me. And God, I thank you. Thank you for that. Let's clap our hands.